Good morning. Welcome to Deadly Days, Tales of Dark Fantasy. I'm Joe Bandel. I'm going to be your host today. Um, but first, we talk. what we're doing is every week, once a week, we tell. I'm going to be telling a story. It's a story that I have translated. Uh, these stories come from, uh, a lot of them will be from famous authors like Hans Heinz Ewers or Carl Hans Strobel. But also there's going to be stories that I have translated for the uh, Orchidean Garten magazine, which was the first, the world's first illustrated fantasy magazine that came out in 1919, uh, and stories that I translated for Sidereal Press for the, the cocaine magazine that they reissued as an English language. And just basically it's stories that I've translated that are over 100 years old, by far most of them. They come out of a period, literary period known as the German decadence period. Uh, and a lot of these stories remind a person kind of like uh, stories by Edgar Allan Poe. And just so you know, uh, so you have kind of an idea about that. Now, if you are interested in reading these stories through a book, they are available at the, my publisher, lulu.com. L-U-L-U is lulu.com. And I have a spot on there, which would be www.lulu.com slash spotlight slash anarchist banjo. You can look that up. Uh, it would take you to all my stuff, or you can look up my name, Joe Bandel, band like a rock and roll band. Or you can look up the name of the author or Dear Orchidean. And there's many ways of finding these books and these stories if you are so inclined. And I encourage people to do that. I have just finished two books of translated stories. Uh, one by Carl Hans Strobel, which was Lemuria Book Two, so that's the second book of uh, stories by Carl Hans Strobel. And I've just finished Hans Heinz Ewer's Volume 3. So there's actually three books, three volumes of short stories by Hans Heinz Ewer's. And of course, um, I'm just finishing up the first year of their Orchidean Gardens and working on issue number 18. So there's a lot of stories that I can draw from and we can go a long time. But today <clears throat> my story is going to come out of the second issue of their Orchidean Garden. It's called The Hasty Corpse by Wilhelm 
Nile. So I think we'll just I'll just dive into it. These days, dying is made so easy. You don't have to do anything other than get sick. Everything else is in the care of the doctor and the funeral home company Foster and Foster. This renowned firm provides everything from the coffin, everything that is needed for a comfortable funeral, to the grieving and sorrow-laden. Request a special package and give it a try. One evening we gave a wake for a client of Foster and Foster. And naturally, another whiskey, please. I'm just starting to tell the story. And that evening we went to the house of mourning. We adopted a certain festive mood because it was the 500th corpse that had been entrusted to our care. And we thought to give the anniversary night a festive coat of paint. The corpse washer and his assistant had already put the man in the funeral chamber, beautifully done up and laid on ice like a delicacy. He was laid out as neatly as anyone could wish. To increase the festive atmosphere, six candles had been lit on mighty stands. Then they left the house and returned to the office to give the next corpse the complete services of Foster and Foster. Jimmy and I sat down in disappointment on both sides of the coffin and tried to pass the night, as if the inmate needed anything. We had sat together like this for 500 times now with a coffin between us and had pretty much exhausted all topics of conversation. On other such opportunities, there had often been a black servant or Irish housemaid that was kind enough to keep us company. Oh, it was an entertaining meal that we improvised on the coffin lid. Our exuberance was subdued but irresistible and some of the deceased would have laughed along with us if their stiff dignity would have allowed it. But this house was, God damn me, completely extinct, even to the dead. The three of us were horribly bored, and Jimmy looked reproachfully at the dead man. We chewed tobacco, but this alone wasn't enough to pass the time. We counted the pearly drops of wax that rolled down the sides of the candles. We made sarcastic remarks about the dead man, but he didn't stand up in his own defense, and we became discouraged. The firing of the house staff had dissipated our mood, and there was nothing else to do other than wait for the manager, that, and demolish without any special formalities, the whiskey which we had brought along and then later to take a nap. The body lay clean-shaven in a comfortable metal coffin, and his hands were peacefully folded over his belly. The right eyelid was open a crack, and the dead man blinked at me with a mischievously twisted eyeball as I sat there in boredom. That is, until I got angry and closed his eyelid. There was a simple smile on his made-up face, if you took another look, he looked like someone who had just heard a joke and didn't quite understand the punchline. Apparently, the situation had surprised him, and he needed time to fully come to grips with it. There are corpses. 
who lie there with a proper sense of dignity and feel themselves to be the center of the festivities being held in their honor. Others wear an astonished smile for show, like an actor who celebrates his anniversary and pretends to be surprised by the homage. There are corpses that are pressed into their coffins with a dogged rage because they had let themselves down. Our corpse could not decide. His comfort was disturbed by worried thoughts. After the manager left, who had just checked in on us to see how we were getting along, I grabbed for the bottle because I could no longer tolerate the stupid grin of the man in the coffin. Luckily, we had managed to deliver the fellow undamaged. Jimmy lit a powerful fire in the fireplace, even though it was prohibited because the winter cold bit so deeply. Then Jimmy drank too, but not without grumbling about working in such a miserable place where you needed to bring your own drink. We drank to numb our boredom, and we drank too quickly. Jimmy fell asleep next to the coffin, and I opened the windows because of the rising heat in the room, with a concern that certainly pointed to my still sober condition. Jimmy was a lot more drunk than I was. Leaning against the fence in the front yard was a policeman, who was apparently just as unnecessary as we were. He was watching the heavens to make certain that not a single star was lost. He was kind enough to accept an invitation to have a glass of whiskey and came right in through the window, able and willing, sparing himself the detour of going through the front door and down the long hallway. We pounded Jimmy awake and our guests brought life to the party. He had a sense of humor and knew just the right jokes for our situation. Attention, my boys, he suddenly interrupted. The gentleman lies in the coffin like in a bathtub. Damn, the heat of the fireplace had melted the ice in the coffin. We lifted the dead man out and put him to dry on a daybed. Jimmy declared that he was a bodyguard and not a nanny, but he did help us lift the coffin out the window. We poured out the water and tried to refill it with fresh ice from the ground and by beating it off the fence. The policeman was more than willing to lend a hand, but he was already heavily drunk and could barely stand up. When we finally got the coffin and ourselves back into the building and wanted to get back to our storytelling, the corpse was sitting upright on the daybed and staring at us in horror. It makes a weird impression, boys, when a, when a corpse is sitting there and afraid for itself. I was not feeling comfortable either because I had a dark foreboding that this incident would not pass without trouble. Jimmy stared broodingly, spasmodically trying to swallow, and the policeman swung his nightstick menacingly. He sensed a violation of the general order. The corpse was pressing like crazy on the buzzer. I could eat my hat. Jimmy said, you won't find anyone else in the house except us. The servants have all gone to hell. The man looked around, distraught. 
I was feeling a bit bad this afternoon. And because you are not feeling so well, why don't you just lie back down in this coffin, Jimmy pleaded. Pitiful fellow, snorted the policeman. I better call Dr. Patterson, continued the dead man in confusion. Oh, Dr. Pa Patterson, Jimmy bellowed in amusement. He was a bit hasty with your death certificate because he receives a percentage for every corpse we deliver. But I'm not a corpse, the man screamed. Very sorry, whispered the policeman, since he considered it impolite to speak loudly in a room of death. You might want to reconsider. I suspect that you are going to have great dif difficulties. What about your fortune, persisted Jimmy. After that diligent attention to detail that our company has demonstrated, any attempt at a lawsuit. Yes, said the man, I have bequeathed everything to my dear cousin, the lawyer, Elias Ross. Jimmy painfully shut one eye. He suspected that the hare was going to have be having financial difficulties difficulties. A gentleman known to be stingy, he said. I think he was the one that let your servants go to save from paying wages. A really bad story. The corpse didn't see why it was a bad story, and Jimmy set down his reasons one after the other. He was not particularly fluent because whiskey at least over a certain amount, is certainly not an elixir for any speaker. But he made his case with a hard stubbornness that certainly made an impression. He noted that the death certificate was already misleading the authorities. The policeman snorted at that. That Foster and Foster would not hear of canceling the burial contract without getting paid, and that the attorney, Elias Ross, because of some petty little matter, would probably not be willing to pay from out of the estate. And that was why the dead man would probably have to fight his own will and testament in court. It was all nonsense what Jimmy was saying, but we didn't have clear heads and couldn't think of anything better in the given situation. If the dead man would have shouted at us and told us to shut up, everything would have been fine. His laying out all day had not been that bad for him, and allowing for his daunting awakening, and the fact that he held on to his own opinion with fanatical persistence, it would have been more comfortable for all participants if we had simply laid the man back in his coffin. Children! Children, uh, whiskey, another glass, please. So the man stared at us in despair, and then suddenly jumped up and raced out the door. The policeman was the first to overcome the effects of the alcohol and took up the chase. He felt duty-bound to intervene, that someone can just simply get up from out of their coffin without further ado is a heavy blow to one's faculties. As an example, if every corpse could just come back to life, it would rapidly place the entire government's use of execution in jeopardy.
With remarkable speed, he was at the door, unfortunately at the same time as Jimmy. That had the consequence that he was smoothly pressed against the doorframe, and with effort, while panting for breath, tried to regain his position but fell behind. Meanwhile, Jimmy had burst out from the pressure of the doorway like a bullet that had been fired from a gun barrel. I chased after him through the hallway and out into the street. We saw the corpse in front of us suddenly plunge into the darkness and get swallowed up. Bon appetit! We ran around and asked everyone if they had seen our runaway corpse. A good-natured policeman laughed out loud at us. Jimmy got mad and knocked him down. He immediately blew his whistle, and the united power of the police force organized an exciting hunt for us, which distracted us from our task, but fortunately was unsuccessful. We searched further and met up with some Irish that tried to beat us up because they thought we were making fun of their own corpse. It wasn't always easy to determine whether we were following the corpse or being followed ourselves. A man from Chicago asked us what we were looking for. We were urgently looking for a corpse of this and that description. For $50, he offered to bring us the next passers-by that fit our description. When he saw our disappointment, he lowered his price sharply, but we did not accept his offer. It was no use. We didn't find the body and had to report to the offices of Foster and Foster. The fat villain declared that it was all an invention. He had never left his post and swore that he had never seen us before. We received a few more kicks for that. The damn thing looked like we would be going to prison. Now we need to put everyone back in their hole. A newspaper reporter that liked to hang around the police station snapped up our last words and let us tell him all the facts. He filled up half his notebook, told us that his paper had reported something similar, and finally shot away. The reporter fixed everything. In the evening paper, the case was completely cleared up. We were photographed, interviewed, were brought down to the police station because one thing was noticeably clear. There had been the robbery of a corpse. We had been entrusted with the body of a private person and it had been sold for the study of anatomy. As for our tale of the corpse awakening and running off, we received a kick in the pants by the police with the demand to not expect them to be so stupid as to fall for that swindle. The kicks were repeated over a period of two days, just as often as we were interrogated. The angry police inspector gave us a few blows across our skulls with the rubber stick. We invoked the testimony of the policeman who had drunken whiskey with us. Set free by the police and the runaway corpse had been brought in and questioned. It was a tangled story. At the time, the corpse had run away from us to the nearest police station and had breathlessly claimed that someone wanted to bury him against his will. The, made up, the makeup on his face and his confused demeanor did nothing to inspire confidence. 
and his experience with the police had been like our own. At first, they took him for a drunk and tried to beat him into sobriety. When he persisted in his assertions, they thought he was crazy and tried to beat some reason into him. Because he stubbornly insisted on having his cousin, the attorney Elias Ross, appointed as his attorney, the attorney was fetched and declared that his cousin was dead. The body had been stolen and that this swindler was just trying to get the inheritance. Finally, they put the corpse into a straitjacket and took it to a madhouse where the newspaper reporter had discovered it. The case has gathered a lot of dust and the attorney is trying to settle in another state. He is not too concerned about the lost inheritance because he has not done so badly. And in the first excitement of the case, installed a desk telephone and hired two office boys. The damages did cost him some money, though. What happened to the corpse? He exploited the colossal free advertising that the newspapers brought to his story, set himself up as a prophet, and founded a new religion, a religion of rebirth. Now he has an income of at least $80,000 annually in an entire harem of disciples. He was nice enough to ensure that Jimmy and I were not left empty-handed because if we hadn't lit that fire, the ice in the coffin wouldn't have melted and he would have had no business as an apostle. No, I'm not going to name you names. You can figure it out for yourselves who it is. Well, it's time to go to sleep. The gentleman pays for my five whiskeys. Good evening, boys. And that's the end of this story. Kind of a nice humorous touch. We'll see you next week.